Welcome to uh, today's CMC podcast. When uh, one of our last podcasts that we did, we during the Rope Rescue Miss Part Three, we ended the conversation, and as usual, uh, John kind of got us uh, going on another subject here right at the end. And that subject is how does the use of NFPA nineteen eighty three compliant gear change what you do? So that kind of gave us the idea to talk a little bit further about not only NFPA compliant gear, but just basically modern gear and how does that change what we do and how we rig and the way we operate. So uh, I'll go uh, through and I'll introduce uh, today's uh, per uh, participants here. John, can you say hi? Hey, it's John McKinley. Okay, Wayne? Hey, everybody. It's Wayne. Fred? Hey, Fred Salazar. How are you guys doing? And uh, I'm Doug Michael Murray. So, so let's start with some uh, low-hanging fruit that we did discuss a little bit on one of the last podcasts uh, as far as uh, when we basically what it comes down to when we talk about how should we use a gear. I think obviously uh, most of us, the first thing we think of is redundancy. What needs to be backed up and what doesn't? So uh, let's start by talking about harnesses. We kind of briefly touched on this. So John, you want to start us off there? Well, we've got a lot of things to talk about coming up. So starting with starting with the user and everything is the harness. And I have yet to see anybody back up their harness. And, uh, you know, that's always the example that I use when it comes to backup is it all comes down to one point, And that is the harness. Now, some people will say, well, our rule is that we attach to different points on the harness, um, which is a valid point. I think it causes some additional problems that we've talked about in earlier podcasts where people insist on putting the backup system, if they're using a tension main and belay type of system, the backup on the dorsal carries over from fall protection. We've talked about that in the past. Um, but uh, the rules do allow that all your systems could attach to one point on the harness and it all comes to one harness. So. That's the ultimate thing, but in the case of a harness, it's a single-person load, remember. So that fire that one off. Then we'll go with, we can go to other parts and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fred, any, uh, anything you want to add to that one? You know, exactly what John said, and, and John's been saying this for as long as I can remember, is, you know, where do we stop? And at some point, it usually comes down to your harness. And, well, John's bringing up different connection points to your harness – if your leg loops or your harness blow out, you know you're gonna you're gonna sieve through it. Um, but as we carry on with this conversation, what needs to be talked about is, you know, are we dealing with equipment of years of long ago where the recreational user, uh, the time of Jim Frank first starting, or are we looking at you know the quality of materials, uh, the workmanship and the testing that goes into our equipment currently? Yeah, excellent point, because there's a huge difference there. So, Wayne, anything to add on harnesses? No, nothing really on harnesses. I think the other two guys have pretty much uh, said the same things I would say. Okay. Why don't you kind of start us out with uh, redundancy of anchors and anchor points specifically? Yeah. Um, obviously, we, we hear the term in our world, you know, bomb-proof anchor. Right. Well, when I hear somebody say that, my assumption is, is it's literally bomb proof, meaning nothing. The, the anchor is unquestionably sound. It's not going anywhere. Right. So 
could you run your manual blade off that? I mean, we've all had circumstances where you've had to, but again, the anchor itself is uh, bomb-proof. The next part would be the components you attach to the anchor, right? Your anchor slats, slings, etc. Obviously, you're going to have a separate one for your main and a separate for your belay. Um, but I guess where the question starts to come up is, is do you make those components within that anchor? So we'll just, let's just focus on the main line, right? So if you use a main line, a piece of webbing for your main line anchor, we have all seen people that are then backing up that with another piece of webbing claiming that, that now the connection to the anchor itself is, quote, redundant, right? And we see that a lot throughout the system. So I, I think that's the, uh, the, the, the big topic we could talk about amongst the group. Right. And I think, too, one of the important things is, you know, especially if we're going to use one-inch tubular webbing, which anchor, which simple anchor did you choose to use? Is it a redundant wrap two pull one, or is it just a simple loop? And that would probably offer some different opinions. So, Fred? Um, going to what you're just talking about, I, I think you have to look at what your application is truly. Um, is this somebody, you're sending a single rescuer over to do a quick hasty assessment? So it's going to be a single person load, mainly a lower, you're not going to be raising um, quick down and dirty, where you know the strength, whether you do a single loop, whether you do a basket hitch or a girth hitch, or now are we doing a systems-based approach where it may be a lower and a raise, we have you know multiple rescuers and or victims on the system. Um, I think that should be definitely part of your decision factor on that redundancy. But going back to what Wayne said is the anchor itself. Are you tying off to somebody's pickup truck and using that as your anchor and not your anchor system, because then you have to look at how much does it weigh? Are you tying off to the front or the back? Um, you know, if you're tying off to the back end of a truck, are you backing that up to another truck? Um, and, and you can go on and on. And at some point with our anchors and it carries through your entire system is, what's strong enough for you? What's strong enough for the AHJ? Um, and that, that's what it's going to boil down to at some point. But as a technician, you want to look through going, where are my most critical points going to be that maybe I really do need to consider redundancy or backup at that point? Yeah, good point. And actually, when it comes to uh, kind of sketchy anchors, uh, John, I think you can probably weigh in the best on that being that uh, with your experience and in, in where you operated in the mountain rescue environment, you guys had to use some things that a lot of us would probably raise our eyebrows at. Well, yeah, you have to use use what you have available. And in, in, in the Southern California, what sometimes is called the elfin forest, where we don't have in many of the areas real trees. We're tying off the brush and grass and whatnot. Um, the backup is a lot more critical. Um, unfortunately, the backup might be as is sketchy as the original anchor, but it's a lot a lot more important to have a backup where you don't trust the anchor than if you're tying around a 36-inch diameter tree or something like that, where even if the tree were laying on the ground, there'd be enough mass there to keep the load from moving anywhere. So, uh, you know, again, it has to be based. You can't, can't really have a rule for everything for everybody. You have to have some experience and knowledge that goes in there to know what your anchor materials are and and to be able to judge what they, what they can do. We've, we've seen, we talk about it in the book, of 
cases. Uh, we see it pretty regularly in the classes in Las Vegas where people tie around a great big rock, but the rock itself isn't very stable. It's a chance that the rock's going to move, the anchor's going to slide under or around or something like that. And there, those are cases where the backup is really essential. And in some of the places that we uh, we teach, especially overseas, even a tree or something like that that you may think is is bomber, in fact, is not. The, the tree may have just been put there, even though it has a large trunk. And I think, uh, Fred, you and Leroy ended up uh, in a scenario like that. Oh, absolutely. They, uh, it looked like a nice tree in a park that we were uh, doing some training in and we were uh, demonstrating the different anchor techniques and we did a pretension back tie and everything went well and we went to break our system down and we're like, oh, well, our main anchor is kind of tipped over and the root bundles up and our pretension back tie did exactly what it was there for. Um, and uh, best learning experience I think those students ever had because no one knew until it was time to break the system down. Oh. I think Excellent. we've had that happen in structural anchors too, as, you know, especially in, in overseas conditions where um, some of the structure is not really structure. It's there for show, not for go. And uh, we've, we've had, uh, you know, parapet caps dissolve on us and all sorts of other things where you think that it's a solid masonry anchor because you're using some sort of considerations that uh, didn't exist over there. And, I've seen students do that domestically where um, they'll tie on to roof, roof equipment and things like that. Whereas um, in California, for instance, the air conditioners may be installed with seismic conditions that don't exist in the Midwest and uh, or wind conditions that exist in some places and not in others. And uh, you'll find that the equipment isn't really as stable or as secure as you think it is. Well, and then I think one other thing, too, is just the knowledge of the facility, especially when you get into industry. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of work in power plants. And when you look at steam vent lines and things like that, you look at a very nice, you know, huge, you know, 12-inch diameter plus pipe, well anchored. You look, oh, that's, that's a bomber anchor. But then, you know, again, you talk to the people that work there that really know what's going on. They say, yeah, that's a steam vent line. If, you know, in a case of an emergency, the valve will lift and that pipe will, you know, will get uh, quite hot enough to melt the webbing. So we would never anchor to something like that, even though by rights, it's a great anchor structurally, but because of what flows through that pipe and sometimes with little to no notice, it's not applicable. So, okay. So I, I think we can uh, hit this next one pretty quickly here. This is the, uh, uh, the thing that's launched a thousand memes, uh, anchor plates. Redundancy in anchor plates, Wayne. Uh, that's something I don't. I, I don't see uh, why people back up. Um, again, it's uh, it, uh, well, assuming it comes from uh, a, a reputable supplier, you know, from source material. I just don't see a need to back it up. In fact, if you start uh, smashing an anchor plates together and you clip in carabiners, you've now placed the load differently on that carabiner because you have a wider footprint with inside that carabiner. Um, I just don't see the need to back up an anchor plate. John? <clears throat> Sorry, I don't, um, the same thing. Uh, I'm not talking about anchor plates that somebody has made or something that somebody has created, but something that, that, that meets a standard, that has a test, that has a history, uh, a pedigree or whatever you want to call it. 
um, there isn't any need. You know, they, mm-hmm. you, you'd look at the numbers and then the anchor plate says whatever it says on it as far as its strength, looking at the factors of safety and the fact that an anchor plate is so simple. And um, if, if it came down to that, I mean, we had situations where people bent anchor plates way back in the days before the standards on the anchor plates, but they still didn't fail. And, um, you know, you have to look at it and say, what can happen to this and how much notice am I going to get? And it just, again, redundancy for the sake of redundancy here is silly. And as Wayne pointed out, it may cause you another problem. And it is kind of funny, too, because sometimes if you look at the the anchor plate itself, you would think that steel would be stronger than aluminum. But in many cases, the aluminum anchor plates are, in fact, stronger than steel and stainless steel. Especially with today's alloys, yeah. Yeah. So, Fred, any uh, anything you want to add to that? Uh, my question is, why do we stop at just stacking two? Why not three or four? <laughs> if two is good, three and four has to be better. Um, again, it comes down to how strong is strong enough. I mean, yeah. what are we trying to accomplish here? Um, you know, are we trying to hold the 747 off of one of these or, you know, a 300-pound rescue load? It's... Uh, Let's be technicians about this and let's think through our problem and how strong is strong enough. Yeah. So now I know one of the things that's a little bit more controversial is when we start looking at, we have a bomber anchor. We've got a inherently either a, a, a single strap that's good to like 40 plus KN. We have an anchor plate and we use a single G-rated carabiner to connect into that anchor strap or the, the certified anchor or whatever. So what, what's your opinion on backing up or having to have a redundant uh, redundant carabiners coming into an anchor plate that you're going to run two systems like a, uh, a twin tension system off of? Fred, you want to start us out? You know, again, it comes down to what how strong is strong enough for you. I understand in my agency, we use the G-rated NFPA equipment for our truck companies that are at ops level, maybe a little bit higher, and then T-rated equipment for more technical folks. And on a real rescue, the two become intertwined. Um, But the people that are using the T-rated gear have the power and ability to think through the problem. So yes, I'm using a G-rated anchor plate or a G-rated pulley, but it's being attached by a T-rated carabiner because I know, hey, this carabiner, this anchoring system is going to be enough for what I'm trying to accomplish at this point in my entire system. And that's when we start doing that critical system analysis. Right. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't advocate using, if you didn't have a G-rated carabiner to put in there, to use two Ts? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> No, it's again, it's knowing your equipment, the equipment limitations, and again, what your agency or the HJ is saying you're trying to strive to for your safety factor. Okay. So, Wayne, some, some people would argue because that carabiner can be opened and it can be, you know, basically humans can interact with it, unlike an anchor plate, that that's why there should be redundancy in there. What are your thoughts? Well, I, 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 I understand their point of view. Right. I, I get where they're coming from, but as we've said on these podcasts for a long time, I def, we're just not seeing the pile of bodies. Right. Where is this stuff failing? Again, if it's from a sourced 
you know, if it's, if it's good sourcing from a reputable manufacturer, um, I, I would have zero problems with one. I understand why people want two. Um, but we have to remember, too, that the, the more equipment we add to these systems, the higher probability of a mistake occurring because you're putting so many extra things in, something's going to get missed, right? Sometimes um, less is more. Yeah. Good point, John. Well, yeah, I come from that from the old age of we were always backing everything up, and I was going to point it out as you already said, an anchor plate doesn't have any mechanics in it, whereas a carabiner does. But at the same token, they're tested. I mean, assuming we're dealing with you know legitimate gear and everything here, they're they're tested. They meet a standard. Um, going through that whole statistical analysis, it's not going to break, and. Um, you know, in the case of a, a carabiner that's not locked yet, still got its strength there. The gate's not going to open if it's got a load on it. And um, I don't think that it's really necessary to be backing that up. I mean, the other thing is, is that because it's more mechanical, there's a possibility of more damage to a carabiner if that's what people are concerned about. But in our history and our testing, we're just not seeing that stuff is getting damaged that way. We take stuff out of service in classes all the time. We go back and test it. Um, after huge drops, and we're not seeing that it's really making any difference to the strength of the device. And so it's just really not necessary. You know, I mean, if it makes you feel better, there's nothing wrong with it in some cases, but you've got to draw the line. You know, trust your gear. Actually, and I've seen in some cases where people try to be overly redundant, where all of a sudden now, because there's so much garbage, if you will, in some of the rigging, that now you end up with a cross-loaded carabiner and other things that actually decreases the safety because of, you know, you, you've made it unnecessarily complicated. Well, and then the other thing about that is, is that it's not only complicated the system, it's slowed down the whole rigging process. And that's maybe fine in a training environment, but when it comes time to doing the rescue, there's a time factor that must be important too. And if we're so build, busy building this unnecessary redundancy in there, we're going to be rescuing a corpse. And that's not the, pro the object of any of this either. Yeah, exactly. So as we're kind of moving out on, from our anchor in the system now, there's one thing that in my mind is, is ironic we don't hear more about uh, with redundancy, and that's Edge Pro. So what are people's thoughts about redundant Edge Pro? So Wayne? Well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, what exactly you're referring to? I mean, we, we know that through tests, uh, many of the tests that have been done on the IDRS website, right? A single piece of canvas is not enough for, for a very sharp edge, right? For all the testing. Um, so, but you can take that same piece of canvas and double up or quadruple it up and therefore have multiple layers of canvas out of one piece of canvas. Right. Right. So, so mm -hmm. it's one piece of canvas but you folded it over a whole bunch of times so that it's actually more than one piece. So is it redundant? Well, yes and no. I guess it depends how you look at it. It's still one piece of canvas, mm -hmm. right? It's like a, one piece of webbing. If you double it up enough times, it becomes redundant, especially if you fold it in half and do the stuff we show in our classes. And it truly is. And we all the testing we've ever done, right? We cut them and it still hangs there. So yeah. against how this stuff is used is as important as uh, anything else. Right, yeah, where you have at least two to four pieces of webbing, and there, there's grommets in the canvas 
and there's loops on the edge pro and there's loops on rollers and such for a reason, right? To attach right. that, because that's really one of the things we're worried about is the movement of that edge pro. Yes. So, uh, Fred, what, what are your thoughts on edge pro? Well, and it, just kind of the same as what Wayne's saying, and it depends on what you're using also. Um, but I think, you know, common sense prevails. If if it's a, a area where you have a sharp edge and you can't provide uh, the appropriate edge protection, think about moving. I mean, granted, we're not going to be able to do that a majority of the time, but, you know, are there other avenues to do that? Um, how many times, because we've been doing this for years, have we seen people use uh, turnout jackets or their rope bags, you know, probably some of the most expensive edge protection you can buy um, to get the job done. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole host of different devices out there. I've seen people who've had their skeds or something like that, that they've taken out of service because it's got a, a rip or a tear in it, cut it up and use that plastic as edge pro. You know, it's probably a little bit sturdier than canvas, but does that need to be backed up too? Or does that create a problem in and of itself now with an edge transition and people tripping over it? So, you know, it's, you got to look at it and see what you're using and what the, the benefits and what the, uh, the cons to it are. Yeah, I know one, uh, one organization that uses pieces of old SCEDs and they refer to it as sketch protection. And it's, oh, it's yeah. actually pretty nice hey, for, it's, uh, for edge it's, it's good, thick material. It's slippery. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I think the, the, the redundancy thing comes in situations where you have something like an Ultra Pro or, or uh, specifically an edge roller where there may be a little bit of a, 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 a high loading type situation where the load moves a little bit and the leverage is going to tip the rope out of the edge protection if you're using, say, a set of rollers, and now all of a sudden it's tipped out of the rollers, and if you didn't have a piece of canvas underneath it, you run a risk. And I think the redundancy there is important, um, whereas it's less important if if it's uh, you know the the rope's not going to move and it's not going to come off of the edge protection. I mean, sooner or later you can't paper the whole side of the hill with edge protection if that's what's <laughs> necessary. But in some cases, and again. Specifically, rollers, the ropes tend to come out, the rollers tend to tip if you don't have anything all lined up and tied in perfectly. And that's a good idea to have that canvas underneath it. Yeah, and then it becomes John, redundancy, you know. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, John. So some of the, sometimes I, I think that's where some of the idea of redundancy is, is misplaced because people forget about the most important thing. Because as you said, the hardware is not breaking, there's no pile of bodies. You know, what is going to cause a problem? lack of edge pro a lot of times is going to be what's going to cause the system failure. And Doug, I think you said the magic word there's people forget about. So uh, we get lulled into this false sense of security because we do apply redundancy in certain areas that, oh, out of sight, out of mind. We don't think about it. We don't check on it. At the end of the rescue, we're like, oh, look how look at what happened here because we didn't check on it. We didn't keep our eye on it. And it came off the roller, it slid out of the canvas or what have you. Um, I think Wayne alluded to it earlier. It sometimes creates that false sense of security, no matter how you're applying that, that redundancy. Yeah, I think uh, good point. So another uh, thing that we get uh, some feedback at, at cl uh, in classes and also 
you know, just, just talking with people is when you get into direction changes, especially with a twin tension system. Uh, if you opt to use, uh, some people opt to use a double pulley or some type of a nat pass pulley uh, tied to a single anchor point, you know, a bomber anchor, and run both their uh, ropes in the twin tension system through that uh, that single pulley, if you will. Or, uh, by single, I mean a double pulley or a, or a nat pass pulley. So, uh, Wayne, what are your thoughts there? Well, obviously, we've made a recent uh, change in how we do some of this stuff. Personally, uh, I always tell people, do the math, right? If you follow your, your loads through your systems and you get to a certain point, you say, okay, there's this much weight on this pulley, right? And again, assuming, you know, all this stuff we've been talking about, source material, repetitive supplier, all that stuff. And I always tell people, you, this is where you need to make your decision. If you put them both through a double shift pulley, I would be completely fine with it. And I would go right now. Other people say, no, I just assume them be separate. That's fine too. It's just going to be more stuff that's out there, right? We've seen sometimes when people do this, because because of the way things line up, they start to bind a lot, right? Whereas a, a anchor strap with one double shift pulley is certainly cleaner, or a, or a not pass pulley is certainly cleaner. But some people they just don't like that uh, that thought of uh, uh, everything being on that axle of that pulley. Well, then you say, okay, well then you know this stuff went through testing. You know, if we can't believe the testing, which is everywhere now. Do we trust anything anymore? Well, I've seen people that on that, they go to that extreme with a not pass pulley, not necessarily on a change of direction, but on some sort of a high line system. And they'll run carabiners through the rope so that if the pulley axle crapped out, then, you know, the, instead of the load falling out, it would be hanging on the carabiners. Right. And uh, I'm going it, back to the statements we've made already. Where are the bodies? And I say this all the time about litters. There just isn't the case history of pulley axles breaking under load that requires this amount of extra rigging. Yeah, theoretically, maybe it should be done, but is it really necessary? And how many other problems is it going to cause? You talked about the binding with the single pulleys, whereas one double shift pulley is going to keep everything in line a lot easier. Same thing with the Tyrolean and backing it up or a change of direction for that matter and an outpass pulley, you know. Yep. Where where is this going on? It just isn't happening. Well, and how many times do you see when somebody attempts to back up that knot pass pulley with the carabiner that that whether it be via webbing, a press cord, or however it's rigged, it ends up getting jammed up in that knot pass pulley, and now you legitimately have a problem. Yeah, you know you're kind of safetying yourself to death there. The, well, the cause is worse than the disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Fred, any input there? No, I think you're you're all hitting right on to the, the hardware component of it. Um, the only thing that to, to go back to from your hardware is, again, how are we anchoring off to? You know, is how many times have we heard, oh, and that tree is okay, that pipe is okay, because it's just a change of direction. <laughs> and right there, that tells us they haven't done the math, because what does that change of direction do? So is it seeing one time as a load? Is it seeing one and a half times load? Is it seeing twice the load? Um, so the misapplication of, hey, what is that change of direction? Well, it doesn't do anything to my system. It's not the hardware that we see failing. It's we picked the wrong type of anchor. We picked the wrong type of anchoring system, stuff like that. So 
Uh, I take a little bit of a different view on it, uh, getting away from the backing up of the hardware, going back to the rest of my system. Excellent. So as, as we keep going, kind of going down the system here, the uh, we had talked a little bit about litters uh, on one of the other podcasts here as far as backups. I know, John, you had some interesting uh, experience with a, with a team that actually wrapped webbing around the top rail in an attempt to back up that basket. That was so, really common practice among some mountain rescue teams. I don't know if they're still doing it, but I've seen it a number of times where they'll wrap the webbing, inter- interlace it, uh, to essentially, you know, back up the frame of the litter. And I don't mean just to tie together a two-piece litter, but the theory was, well, if all the welds broke on the top pipe, you know, we were connected into this webbing too. And of course, the webbing is wrapped around the top pipe, so it's going to be abraded and everything like that. And it was a pain to do, so lots of times it got left on the litters and suffered the ultraviolet and other exposures if it was outside. And and, and I just sat there, you know, and shake my head and go, okay, that's really nice, but where are these litters that are breaking apart? I can't find any case history of it. And I was the prime author of the, of the litter testing, the STM litter standard, and uh, went to the three major manufacturers of litters, talked to them about it, and nobody really has a history of it. Yeah, we all know the story about the frozen, you know, Ferno 71 up north and stuff like that. That's, that those were exceptions, but... Um, it may have been prior to my 50 years ago with old, you know, World War II litters that were alloys or something like that, but we just haven't seen it. I've seen a lot of bent litters, but I haven't seen any that have come apart. And my contention is if the force is strong enough to tear the litter apart, the patient's not viable anymore anyway. So I know that's just kind of me being crude, but, um, that was kind of one of those extreme what if things for people that I thought didn't do enough time doing rescues, but. You know, that's yeah. just me. <laughs> well, I guess one of the most extreme environments that litters get put into sometimes, uh, you know, is, is helicopter rescue. And so, Wayne, what uh, what are your experiences there? Well, as uh, you know, I did uh, a lot of years on our department's uh, helicopter. Um, obviously, the, you know, the litter is hanging, you know, midair. So there's really no forces on it. And obviously, we try to avoid hauling out of trees and stuff like that for obvious reasons, right? I mean, I've had we've had to do things, but you know, there's a uh, a checklist we go down. But I'm going to take a different approach to this. I I have this written down because it's a story I tell frequently in classes, and that is when we get into redundancy. I always look back to my times in air operations, and our hoist cable was 250 feet long with no backup, right? The cable was three eighths. Had a 3,000 pound working load and a, or, sorry, 3,000 pound brake strength and a 600 pound working load. And you put those guys out there and they were ear to ear on a single line. 230 foot hover and certain people, they loved it. You take those same people the next day to the fire tower and put them 40 feet above the ground. And they look at you like, whoa, dude, are you sure about this? I'm going, wait, hang on. Yesterday we were hanging out of a helicopter and you do realize that if the pilot didn't like what he felt, he popped a squib and it's all over. So sometimes it's it's a matter of, but, but the guys loved it. Um, I think sometimes people have to look get you know, think about some perspective here, and it's like you know, yeah, you want all this extra safety, but you do realize that at a certain point, um, like yesterday on the helicopter, for example, you weren't doing any of this and you were completely fine with it. 
right? But we always we used to kind of laugh about perspective because people, uh, the helicopter was fun. They loved it. Yeah, the term expendable load doesn't seem to come up as often uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, in those scenarios. So, and if you look, I know I always like kind of quizzing people when they, when they ask about, well, why don't you tie a tail to somebody, you know, to the victim in the basket? And, you know, what happens if the bridle fails? Is how many connection points are there in the bridle? Right. There's four. So that's actually double redundancy. So there's four separate points. And then if you use a pre-manufactured tie-in uh, with like a little sit harness and the cross straps, you've got three separate points at which the person is tied into the litter with. Well, so, I'm pretty sure I made this this comment in a previous podcast where I said, if you're going to do this stuff, think A to Z, not A to X, right? And what I mean by that is if you're going to put that little tail down to the patient, you have to assume that litter is going to go away and the person is going to be hanging off that. Well, if that's not hanging in the right spot, you're going to snap them in half, right? So it's like, you know, some people are doing it just to do it. If you're going to do it, it needs to work and, and be, you know, uh, and save the patient. But again, where are these piles of bodies? Where are these broken litters? This is not happening. Mm -hmm. But we see people doing it all the time. And I'm sure they have reasons for doing it. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times, it's just that's the way we've always done it, right? Right. So, Fred, anything uh, you want to add on the on the bright or on the litters? No, I think you guys have pretty much hit all of it. Um, you know, the, the only, only issues I've ever encountered or been told about with litters is the human interaction with it where they're not being used appropriately. Uh, it's not an equipment issue. It's an application issue. And I, and I think kind of, kind of taking your, your comment here about, you know, application, one of the uh, recent uh, pro tip videos that we did was a stairway lower. And it actually, uh, John and Leroy, or excuse me, uh, John and Wayne were in the video and they're literally walking the person down the stairs, you know, while suspended from a single rope. And we had multiple comments on that about, you know, well, why isn't there a blade line? Even though we explained in the caption, we, we don't use blade lines for specific reasons. It'd be a tangled up mess and the blade line actually causes more problems than what it solves. And at any given point, they're never, you know, more than three to four feet above the stairwell. So I think right. there's many times when a single rope technique, i.e. the stairway lower is probably the perfect example of that, where it's far superior than having a completely redundant system. Right. So you guys got Absolutely. any uh, any other well, examples we, you, you look, look at our military special operators, right? When they insert people, they're just fast roping, right? There's no safety lines there, mm -hmm. right? I mean, sometimes it's a risk-benefit. Risk you say, okay, here's what I've got to do. And I'm, I, I know my gear, I know my training, and I'm completely fine with this. Where where I can start to see redundancy is people that aren't, you know, they train once a year, you know, they've been trained and they do their refresher training once a year. And, you know, they don't have the time to get in depth that like some of us other people do. So then I understand, but what they're really rigging for is their mistakes, not gear failures, right? They're backing themselves up. Mm -hmm. they, they figure the more things they throw at it, you know, the odds of a, of a casual failure become less. When in reality, you can make the exact opposite argument and say, well, hang on, the more stuff you put in, the more stuff you have to look at, and the more things that can go wrong. It, it, Wayne, you just really brought up a good point, too. And, you know, the one thing when we talk about all this redundancy, 
some of the, the the one forgotten redundant piece in there is the system safety check. Right. In classes, yeah. we make sure that it's, it's looked at by a minimum of three people. You know, whoever rigged it, somebody else on their team, and then a safety officer, you know, slash instructor. Right. So that's, if, if you're going to really concentrate on redundancy, that system safety check is probably one of the biggest places where you want to have a good redundant uh, you know, look at everything, and especially right. the person going over the ad, the rescuer. You know, they've got skin in the game. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, I, I know we've talked in uh, some of the previous podcasts and stuff. I know I got into the, the this business in the early '80s, and there was still you know SRT back then meant single rope technique, not specialized rescue techniques. And and I mean, it was like, what's a belay line? Right. So now. You know, sometimes we go overboard with it, but I'm I'm glad that we do, you know, like twin tension systems and so on most of the time. So, John, what are your thoughts there as far as from an evolution standpoint, where we've come from to where we're there, to where we're at? Well, again, um, the single rope technique, you know, from the caving community, it was it was done, you know, as a safety reason. You know, you had to be really careful about everything you did, and you knew you were hanging on a single rope, but the complications of that second rope twisting around, kind of like we've talked about in other in other situations, made it impossible to use that. And you just had to be careful. And that's the way it went. And I'm not suggesting that we need to do that all the time, because where we can have a second secondary rope or a twin tension system, static main, tension belay, whatever you want to call it, you know, I know it's not that one, but we're going to see if anybody's listening today. Um, <laughs> that's the that's the way, you know. I think I think having a backup rope is is definitely an advantage, but there are times when you can't do it, and um, the rope is probably the most easily damaged thing. It's flexible. It's running over edges. It has a possibility of abrasion, and um, again, ropes ropes aren't breaking on their own. Ropes are being abraded and they're being cut, and I think that all of this redundancy has to do with that more than anchors and other things pulling out. Yeah, well said. I'm looking at our at our time here, and I think we're we're coming to uh, an end here. So, uh, Fred, anything you want to say to wrap us up here? Just kind of. It seems like I, I keep repeating the same thing. It, it's not the equipment that we're seeing uh, failures with. It's it's the human interface with the equipment. Um, I think it boils down to a robust training program where your folks are trained to look for those failures with your anchors, uh, what makes a good anchor, what doesn't, uh, being able to think A to Z and doing the math through the system to see where those critical points are that may need some backing up, whether it's a pretension back tie um, or a different type of anchoring configuration. Um, but I'm not seeing it in, in my years as a problem with the equipment. It's, it's how we apply that equipment. Yeah, I agree. So, John, any closing thoughts? Um, a foolish consistency is a problem. So do it because you need to do it, not because it's it's just a rule that somebody came up with that we're going to do everything. Think about what you're doing. Fred said it. Wayne said it. Do the math. Know what you're thinking about and ask the question, what's going to happen here and what could happen, and if you feel there's a problem, then back it up. And if you don't feel there's a problem, don't do it just for the sake of doing it. 
Excellent. Wayne? I guess I could close by just saying risk-based redundancy, right? Look at your, uh, look at your systems. Think about uh, everything like the previous two speakers have said. And if you feel there's a true need, uh, apply the appropriate redundancy, but don't do it just because. Yeah. And I think you know, one of the, one of the best things I, I think that got brought up today was, I think it was Fred, you know, brought up know where your loads are. Those changes of directions aren't a minor thing. They're a major thing. So if you know where your loads are, then you're going to, you know, that's where you really need to look at, you know, where, where you are redundant and uh, spend a little extra time looking at things when you're doing your system safety inspection. Absolutely. Well, thank, so thanks everyone for uh, joining us for another episode of the CMC podcast.